This is J.M. DeMatteis, writer of Scooby Apocalypse, and you are listening to a podcast named Scooby-Doo. Yeah! Welcome to another episode of a podcast named Scooby-Doo, the show that attempts to unravel 50 years of mysteries, meddling kids, and masked villains. My name is Mike Josic, and I'll be your guide through all things ghostly and groovy as I investigate every angle of every mystery and beyond. So grab yourself some Scooby Snacks, fire up the mystery machine, and let's start the show. You know what my favorite kind of food is, Scoobo buddy, old friend, old pal? <laughs> Stadium food! I'm burying leftovers for later? Uh-huh. Good idea. Here, I'll give you a hand. Hey, I wonder where this goes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 38 of a podcast named Scooby-Doo. I hope everybody out there is doing well and keeping safe. And I'm very glad that you chose to join me for yet another conversation with one of the people who has contributed to this 50-year franchise in some capacity. Actually, speaking of 50-year franchise, we are very much closing in on the end of that year 50. We are just under two weeks as I record this to September 13th. And I think in a lot of ways, uh, we've had a pretty good 52 weeks in the world of Scooby. Judging by some of the material that has come out in that time and some of the material that we know is coming out in the near future, I think there's some good days ahead for Scooby-Doo. We've we've had the original series on Blu-ray. We've had the uh, Scooby-Doo movies on Blu-ray. Both of them look great. Obviously, I wish they had more bonus features, but with any luck, Warner Brothers will push forward with more Blu-ray releases. And in lieu of their own added value content, I will continue on my mission to add to that pool of uh, resources, of archival things for people to engage with and enjoy. Now, obviously, one of the lesser great moments in the last 52 weeks was the passing of Joe Ruby just this past week. Haven't really said anything about it on Twitter, and I haven't really said anything about it anywhere. Wasn't really sure what to say. I was in the process of trying to connect uh, with both Joe and Ken, hoping to get them on the show. Joe and Ken are pretty much the last surviving members of the team that was literally in that room uh, when, when this concept was developed and created. We've lost Joe and Bill, we've lost Ewo, we've lost Fred Silverman, and for that matter, Bill Lutz is, is no longer with us as well. So yeah, so I'm really, I'm saddened by, by the news of the passing of uh, Mr. Ruby. Obviously, Joe and Ken went on post-Hanna-Barbera to create their own studio and develop dozens of shows that were part of all of our childhoods. And i just like to express my heartfelt sympathies to uh, the Ruby family. 
not that any of them are probably listening to this podcast, but it's a, it's a sad day in, in the world of Scooby and in the world of animation. Now, having said that, and uh, moving on to happier things on this episode of the podcast for, for fans of What's New Scooby-Doo, I think this is going to be a bit of a treat for you. We have none other than writer, story editor, and producer Ed Sharlack on the show. And on top of being one of the core group of producers who helped kind of develop and execute What's New Scooby-Doo, Ed was also a part of a couple of the direct-to-video movies, including Scooby-Doo and the Loch Ness Monster and Scooby-Doo and Where's My Mummy. And he also had a hand in doing some writing and development for a couple of Scooby-Doo video games, which is kind of cool. So Ed sort of had his fingers in a number of Scooby properties. And I think his stories of his time behind the scenes at Hanna-Barbera and Warner Brothers working on these shows is, uh, is a good listen. Hopefully you will enjoy it as much as I did putting it together. And without further ado, I will let you move on to the conversation segment, the interview segment of the program. I give you my interview with Scooby-Doo writer, story editor, and producer, Ed Sharlock. We'll see you on the other side. My guest on this installment of the podcast is an accomplished writer and producer who's worked for various television, direct-to-video, and video game projects over the course of the last four decades. He's worked in both live-action... Actually, is it? it's five decades, isn't it? Well, since 1966, <laughs> or whatever that would be. Yeah. He has worked in both live-action and animation, contributing to more series than I have time to name, but a short list would include That Girl, Love American Style, Happy Days, Mork and Mindy... Quantum Leap, Duckman, and he also wrote the pilot to another personal favorite uh, series of mine, Invader Zim. Oh! <laughs> he was part of the team tasked with bringing four mystery-seeking teenagers and their faithful dog back into your living rooms in the early aughts. The gang hadn't been seen in New Weekly Adventures on the small screen for some time, but that all changed with the introduction of the popular and entertaining What's New Scooby-Doo. My guest served on that show as a writer, producer, and story editor, and would continue to contribute to the franchise for the rest of that decade through two direct-to-video films, a couple of Scooby-related video games, and generally leaving his mark on the franchise and the history of mystery. I'm very pleased to welcome to the show Ed Sharlack. Thanks for joining me on the podcast, Ed. My pleasure. It's great to join you, Mike. Now, the first question I usually ask all of my guests is... Basically, what was your first contact with Scooby-Doo? Were you uh, somebody who watched it when it was on television when it originally aired, or did you come to it strictly professionally? What is, uh, what's the story there? I would say strictly professionally. I uh, am a big animation fan, but didn't get to uh, get involved with animated TV series till later in my career. And uh, in the course of that stage of my work, I wound up, being sent by an agent to Warner Brothers Animation, who at that point had just purchased uh, Hanna Barbera, and uh, for for a meeting with uh, with the idea of possibly uh, writing, producing Scooby Doo, I had never seen a Scooby Doo episode, and so it's something I, if I were to get the job, which I did, I'd have I had a lot of catching up to do and learning to do, and it was very exciting to evolve into uh, into the Scooby world. So you said you were an animation fan. What uh, cartoons did you enjoy? 
Oh, growing up, every you know, I I love Warner Brothers, uh, all the characters that they did, and the Mel all the Mel Blanc characters, and uh, I love Disney and uh, UPA uh, was a big favorite of mine, and uh, later on Pixar before they joined Disney and after, and uh, on and on. I just uh, I, I liked clever animation art art wise and writing wise and there's there was a lot of it and that it, it greatly influenced me my whole life in fact i think a lot of the live action uh work i did was influenced by my experiences watching clever animation through my childhood despite doing a scooby-doo podcast uh i never really connected with hanna-barbera characters really strongly for most of my youth i mean i watched the flintstones i watched the jetsons because Back in those days, there was no Cartoon Network. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Basically, if it was animated, you watched it. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't matter if it was good or bad. Right. And I was drawn to those Looney Tunes as well. Like, that was so formative for me. And oh, yeah. Just the attitude. There was, like, this this, this kind of smarminess to them. They were, like, super clever. <laughs> yes. They were not as saccharine as, like, the Disney cartoons or the Hanna-Barbera cartoons. They just had that attitude. They had that rough-and-ready kind of feel to them. So, yeah. I, I feel you. <laughs> well, I think they were written to an adult wit as well, uh, a, a, an adult wit and audience, and so uh, it was it was clever. Very much so. So you said that Scooby Doo was your first foray into animation. No, no, I had uh, I I evolved into uh, writing animation with uh, the Wild Thornberries. Oh, sorry. And with. Uh, it was Duckman, wasn't it? Uh, well, oh, yeah. The very first one was Duckman. Yeah. Right. And uh, we, we did some wonderful things with Duckman. I was writing with a partner, Eva Almos, and we got actually got an Emmy nomination, a Cable Ace Award for one of our Duckman episodes. That I, I came out of uh, a love also for film noir, and we got to parody film noir on a Duckman episode that was animated in black and white. It was very, very cool. One of my favorite things... I've ever done, and uh, that kind of led me to the Wild Thornberries and uh, an episode of Pinky and the Brain, and we were going to do uh, reboot the Jetsons for Hanna-Barbera, but then Warner Brothers bought Hanna-Barbera, and they shelved the Jetsons, and I wound up writing for Hanna, actually with Mr. Barbera on uh, Scooby, and of course, the pilot for Invader Zim was very exciting. I got to work with uh, the young man who had created the character Joan and Vasquez yeah just a brilliant a brilliant guy and uh, we got to work with him on the pilot Invader Zim so uh, the, that all came before my experience with Scooby right I I did know that <laughs> it was a, by the way uh, when I when I was writing mysteries for the wild thornberries we would get notes from Nickelodeon that said uh, our story was too Scooby or to Scooby-Doo as a criticism. And, of course, at that point, I'd never seen Scooby-Doo, so I didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> but it, it, it kept staying in my head, so when we eventually, when I eventually was involved with What's New Scooby-Doo, I really didn't want to make the stories too Scooby, you know, too cliche of what the old show used to be and try to give it, uh, in my opinion, uh, stronger comedy and better mystery twists that I'd felt the show before, uh, whether I'm wrong or right, I, I, I felt the show before didn't really have. 
and uh, they were greatly welcomed. And it's things that people talk about now when they talk about our our version. What's new, Scooby Doo? So I'll, I'll try to save some face and, and restructure that question I was originally asking. You worked many years in live action. Uh, in the introduction, we mentioned that you started back in 1966. Yeah. What was your attraction to script writing? What what got you into writing in general? And what drew you to television? Well, that's a good question. I started writing humor when I was six years old to make my mom laugh. And uh, she was greatly encouraging, so I kept it up and liked to write parodies and skits, skits and sketches. So I did that all through school. When I finally got to college, which was uh, UC Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, uh, I was in a fraternity. I was blessed with being surrounded by very talented, funny people in my fraternity, and so therefore inspired to write uh, comedy shows, I mean, uh, uh, satiric sketches for uh, fraternity entertainment, wound up, I'll, I'll do this quick, but wound up with a, a, a sketch that I written and directed and had my very funny cast from my fraternity star in, and we did it in a competition for an audience of 3,000 people at the Berkeley Community Theater. It was an annual competition the school has. And we came in first place. My cast carried me on stage with the trophy. <laughs> and that, my, my parents were there that night. And that was the, the night I announced that I wasn't going to uh, be going to law school. This is what I wanted to do for a living. Uh, I graduated two years later. Within six months of my graduation, I did pursue that, and uh, I had, uh, with a partner, over uh, we had 17 half hours on all three of the major networks within six months of my graduation from Berkeley. So uh, it all evolved from writing through my school years and, and being blessed with a wonderful cast that I could uh, write shows for in, in college. I've heard from a few people uh, who are basically making their way into television at that time that, uh, and it may just be these people, but it, it didn't seem like the most difficult of entries, entry points, I guess. Like, I wondered if there was a, an atmosphere at the time where they were looking for writers, they were looking for fresh voices. And that, I mean, I know... Well, there were a bit. I know how difficult it is to get into the industry now. Kind of what well, was the... It's always been, it's always been difficult. I think we, we were blessed also with some luck. Ageism was in reverse then. Right now, ageism is um, after someone's maybe 40 or 50, writing work dies down. In those days, the comedy people were all over 40 or over 50. They'd come from movies and radio and uh, a lot of classic TV. And so as two, me and my partner were both in our early 20s, it was very, very rare to hire someone that young. Now, in those days, the Writers Guild let them pay us less than uh, the normal fees for scripts. So that was one way that we were appealing. The other way was we were young. We were a male-female team, which you rarely saw in those days. But when we, when we started writing, it was all older guys with cigars <laughs> from New York. And we were, we were like a fresh uh, entity. Also... Um, we were writing one of the first shows that we uh, series that we were writing for was that girl with Marlo Thomas, which was about a young woman living on her own in New York and her boyfriend. And I think they felt that 
a young male-female team would be ideal to write, to have the sensibility for that. And uh, ironically, I wrote more for her and Peggy wrote more for the boyfriend. <laughs> but, we, we, you know, it, it was it was difficult to break in then, too. It was just, and especially since we were, we, we it was intimidating to know that we were going to be coming into a field where the writers were all veterans and experienced. But they taught us. Those people taught us. We learned so much from people like Carl Reiner and, and uh, Gary Marshall and et cetera, Buck Henry, people that uh, we worked with. Yeah, I can imagine. Do you remember your first script that was filmed and broadcast? Yeah, the uh, first one that was, uh, our first assignment was a show called Please Don't Eat the Daisies that was based on a Doris Day movie and it was a series that was on a couple of years. But uh, at the same time, we got the assignment to do a, a bunch of that girl scripts and that girl was the first one that was actually on the air. And I remember it very well and I also remember going in to see the dailies, the, sh the film that, had, uh, you know, the, the scenes that had been shot the day before, they invited us in to watch and I was amazed to see they were in color because uh, at that point it was like the last year when most TV shows were in black and white. So uh, it was, that I remember that. I also was thrilled to hear words that I had written up on a screen with professional actors uh, in our film. It was, it was quite exciting at, at age 23. I remember when uh, Jordana recommended that I contact you and speak with you uh, that Jordana Arkin who I'm not yeah. sure what episode number it is but uh, anybody who's following the show may know I've already spoken to Jordana Arkin who freelanced for What's New Scooby-Doo um, but she recommended that I she's a very good writer yes yeah when she recommended that I contact you uh, I hit up your IMDB as as one does and I looked at the, the credits there and I was like, man, you are one of the people who gave me something to do after school for most of my childhood. <laughs> uh, the shows that you were involved with, The Happy Days and The Mork and Mindy's and Quantum Leap and, I mean, mostly comedy, right? A little bit of mystery. I would say I was about 70% sitcom. Then I did a number of our uh, variety series. I got to wrote, write for some pretty big stars that way, but I really appreciated the story shows, the, the half-hour sitcoms. Then I did uh, a handful of our mystery shows, and my favorite, I love film noir, and, I, and we got to write for, uh, I got to write and, and co-produce uh, Mickey Spillane's My Camera with Stacey Keach right. for four years, and we tried to do a little film noir movie every week, and uh, sometimes more successful than others, but some of them were wound up being pretty satisfying and uh that was really fun and actually i think i brought a little bit of that sensibility into the mysteries that we did on what's new scooby-doo i remember that show that was kind of that was one of my gateways into noir <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> the point of bringing that up uh, is just you have a long kind of career in live action and uh, even though you said that you enjoyed animation it seemed interesting that you came to it as late as you did and i'm curious how that came about, how you ended up getting involved with uh, with that first series, Duckman. Well, first of all, I'd always wanted to do animation, and it was intimidating to me because I loved it so much, and it, it, I didn't know whether I could actually do it. Two guys named Jeff Reno and Ron Osborne, who had started their writing career working for us on, um, us, I say, uh, I was producing Mork and Mindy with 
one of my writing partners, Tom Tenowich, and their first job was as writers on Mark and Mindy. A few years later, they created Duckman, and they brought me and my then partner, Eva Almos, in to, uh, to write for them, to write the Duckman show. They knew I loved comedy. They, they had a great rapport with me because we had worked together, and they knew I had a feel for the, again, for the um, detective. He was a duck detective. So it was because of these guys that worked on Mark and Mindy that developed this show, and, and I wound up writing that for them. And that, that was my gateway into animation. You've mentioned a couple times writing with, uh, collaborating with a writing partner. Is that a yes. preferred style of writing for you? Uh, yes, very much so. Uh, it, 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 writing, it can be a very lonely business. I found that when I wrote with certain partners, the uh, ultimate product was better than e- either of us could write by ourselves. When we collaborated, we could, you, know, you, you each come up, up with a, uh, a particular way you want to go with something, and you find that the third way that, that you both agree on is better than the first and second way that we both had uh, individually. And it's also much more fun. We had a, uh, always had great laughs. I was very lucky to have wonderful, talented writing partners that I think a lot of the, the work that I did was greatly augmented by the, um, the people I worked with. I've always been curious, on, on many shows that I've watched over the years and, and many of my very favorite shows, there's always like one or two writing partners Sometimes they end up splitting up and finding different writing partners or whatever. But I always wondered, how hard is it to find a writing gig when you're a writing team rather than just an individual writer? Is there any kind of like biases towards that because you're paying two people instead of one? Well, yeah, I think there probably are. First of all, they, they feel they're getting more for their money. You know, to pay, uh, you get two for the price of one, basically. And uh, also that collaboration, especially if people have had some success their partner in the past, they want that chemistry on their show. And uh, at least when I was writing, it, it was uh, very appealing to production companies to have a team. And again, even financially, they could pay us uh, essentially two for the price of one. So uh, I assume that's still the case today. Maybe, maybe not. But uh, it certainly was during the years I was writing. Interesting. But we didn't do it. For, I didn't do it for that reason, uh, you know, as, as a potentially a better way to get a job. I just did it because I loved writing with these particular uh, partners, and uh, one evolved after the other. I actually had four major partners, and uh, one, Peggy Elliott Goldwyn, who I we met when we were in our early 20s and are like brother and sister to this day, but uh, hmm. the, the majority of my early writing was with Peggy. And then uh, a great portion of my later writing is with Tom Tenowich, who he and I um, produced Mark and Mindy together, amongst other things. Yeah, it's just interesting to hear because it always seemed like it would be an obstacle to me for whatever production company was looking for writers. But I guess you are getting more bang for your buck that way. <laughs> yeah, it was it was great. And then, and then the last partner, Eva Almos, I met her. I do a, a UCLA class I've been doing it for 26 years, and she was a student in the class. And it was a time when the Jerry Seinfeld show was very popular. And a lot of people were writing Seinfeld, speculative Seinfeld scripts. And I was, she was just a student in the class and she showed me her spec Seinfeld script. And it was really wonderful, as good as any of the show, the episodes on the air. I said, 
let's write together. <laughs> and we did, and we wound up writing very successfully for the next eight years, including uh, Emmy nominations and Cable Ace Awards and uh, Annie, which is the animated award uh, nominations. So it was, uh, and she, you know, these all my writing partners are still my close friends. And uh, Eva, Eva was one of my favorites because she's really funny. And so uh, I knew I was going to laugh every day we worked together. In fact, one time she had me laugh so hard, she still, we still tell this story. Uh, it was during lunch that I sent tangerine seeds out of my nose because I was laughing so hard as she had said. And uh, she had to duck, of course. But uh, uh, it, it's, uh, again, it, it makes it so much more fun than, than trying to write alone, especially if your product winds up being as good or better than uh, when you write by yourself. Absolutely. So once, once you made your way into animation, I mean, obviously, you have to write <laughs> scripts that people like and, and be successful at it. But do you just continue... Because um, you said you were new to to animation, so to, to continue in animation was it just building off of the previous successes? As a writer, as a writer, not as I was new as a writer, but definitely not as, as a fan. A, yeah. a fan and but a yeah, as, as a writer, like picking up. Because yeah. once you got into animation, you kind of just kept rolling with it. So yeah, I was, it just, was one thing. One thing just led to another, and you know, once once you're into something, it's easy for an agent then to sell you to another show, and uh, so. It was, uh, you know, with, with Duckman, it was people that I knew that brought me in. After that, it was just our agents saying, uh, well, Nickelodeon has this show called The Wild Thornberries. Do you want to go talk to them, etc.?" on and on, until I, I had an agent that said, are you interested in writing? They're trying to develop a new Scooby-Doo at Warner, uh, you know, animation that now owns Hanna-Barbera. And I said, well, I'm, I'm willing to go over and meet them. And uh, so that sent me over there and it wound up being uh, I was there for doing the What's New Scooby Doo for almost four years and it's one of my favorite things I've ever done it's really interesting to me that they were looking for someone and you went in for it I always kind of assumed that you know you get like one person in place who's kind of developing it and then they bring in people so you did not know Jim or George at the time correct? no the uh, executive at the studio there wanted a producer and so was interviewing different people, interviewed me, interviewed Jim, interviewed George. This is Jim Krieg and George Doty. Separately, none of us knew each other. And with the thought of trying to find somebody to run the show as a writer. And uh, then I got a call from my agent saying, they loved all three of you. Would you mind working together? And all three of us said, we'd love it. And so then we got together and, and we enhanced each other. We all did our own writing, but we, we developed the stories together. Then we'd all do our own script writing. And we also, when we needed to have some uh, other, because we were busy writing other people doing some of the scripts, we brought in people like Jordana and a guy named Tom Shepard, who was the, my entree into Pinky and the Brain when I did that, and some other really talented people to do scripts for us. And we'd help them, uh, we'd uh, guide them through the stories we wanted, and then they would write their scripts, and then we would do the polishing when the, they'd turn them back in. We never had a writer's room. We, I hate writer's rooms, but <laughs> the three of us had fun working together, developing uh, the stories, and then we the, the scripts were written uh, 
authored by the various scriptwriters, including us. That whole idea of the writer's room, I think, has been really popularized by uh, live-action television and, and just with the, the focus yeah. and that, that second golden age of television you know, that we're all kind of experiencing right now. And I think everyone just assumes every show has a writer's room. And what I've kind of increasingly learned is that, particularly in animation, uh, there's usually a story editor, there's maybe one or two other writers, and then there's some freelancers. There's very rarely a writer's room. The only the only exception, the notable exception that I can tell you is The Simpsons. Apparently, has been very successful with writers' rooms because they have this room full of Harvard graduates that they had at the beginning anyway, and uh, who really had a great rapport with each other. But it's one of the best written shows in, of any kind uh, in the history of television, and they actually came out of a writers' room. But I think that's one of the few examples of where. A writer's room produces good comedy. I am very skeptical about a bunch of people in a room trying to outdo each other with jokes and trying to form a solid story when you have a lot of voices. And the, the story is the ultimate basis of any good script. Yeah, I think Mike Groening runs all of his shows like that because Futurama is also uh, very similar to that. And yeah. I mean, essentially, they run those shows like sitcoms. Yeah. And. I mean, when you think of the people who are involved, that's not a surprise. <laughs> but right, yeah, yeah, definitely an exception to the rule. So, when you guys all got hired on to develop the new series, um, did Warner Brothers have any idea of what they wanted, or were they just like, "We want more Scooby Doo"? What do you guys got? No, they wanted what's new Scooby Doo. They wanted it to be new and current, and whatever we could bring in it from our particular backgrounds. I think one reason I was there was so I could bring my sitcom sensibility, joke writing from, from adult scripts, and my mystery story background. Both George and Jim had backgrounds in very interesting shows, and so that you know they wanted us to uh, bring our sensibilities to uh, uh, make it a whole new series with all the tropes from the original shows. And uh, most of the cast, actually, we had, a, we, we had our cast was just so delightful to work with and so so good. And uh, most of them came from uh, from previous incarnations of Scooby Doo. Yeah, it was a really interesting show to kind of experience when it came out. At least for me, I know there'd been a few iterations. Some people grew up on Pup Named Scooby Doo, and I was never as big a fan of it as as some of the people that I know what you grow up with is usually like what you imprint on. Yeah. And when I saw, I was super skeptical because the, I don't dislike the live action feature film, but I also think it's a very different kind of Scooby-Doo and the Scooby-Doo's that they were making in the direct to video arena. They were kind of doing a different thing. They'd sort of aged the characters up a bit. They'd sort of moved them on. Yeah. So I was really curious what the new series would be like, because we hadn't had a Scooby-Doo series in a long time. I remember watching it with my kids and they were really just getting off on seeing, you know, entertaining animated mystery show. And I was kind of getting off on the fact that you guys seemed to really be respecting the original series. Warner Brothers and Hanna-Barbera had strayed so far off from kind of the core concept that was created back in 69 with uh, Ruby and Spears and Takamoto. And it was new and it had new ideas and it was a new presentation but at its core, it felt like 
okay, somebody said we need we need to bring back kind of what made Scooby-Doo work. And I really felt like you guys did that. So I was really curious sort of what the uh, what the genesis of the show was and how much of that was like intentional and how much of that was just uh, not luck necessarily, but uh, like minds and, and sort of philosophies for animated series and mysteries and whatever kind of just all meeting at the same point right place right time kind of thing well definitely we um wanted to respect and uh, emulate the uh, what was successful about the show in the past and uh you know keep the characters develop them a little if we could the way they were though and not do anything like the new movie Scoob, where apparently I haven't seen it because my friends warned me off of it, that apparently Scooby actually talks. You know, things like, we we did not want to do any of that. We wanted to keep everything the way it was, but in, enhance the uh, level of the humor and the stories. Other than that, everything, which was a um, tutorial for me, because I had to learn all about the older shows, but certainly Jim and George were very well-versed in it, as was Christopher Keenan, who was the head of production and really knew knew the old series and wanted to keep the uh, sensibility of that and yet have us take it into, a, into the, millenni- the millennial age. This is already 2001. I guess that could be called the millennial, millennial age, <laughs> if you can say it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that counts as millennial, yes. Yeah. You mentioned once you were getting involved with the show, you had never seen an episode of Scooby-Doo, so you had to go back and uh, check out the show. I'm curious what that experience was like for you. If it was uh, some people I know who have done it for the job were kind of like it needed to be done, but it was a bit of a chore. And some people very much have like nostalgic attachments to it and really enjoyed it. So I'm curious because you said you had like no contact with Scooby, what it was like for you. It was a learning experience through George and Jim and Christopher Keenan, the animators. To this day, I've never seen an episode of Scooby-Doo before What's New Scooby-Doo. I didn't watch them then. I haven't seen them since. I just took it from what I learned from my friends who, who were experienced with watching the show and what it was like. And then we just went from what we had. And, uh, and of course, in our story meetings, I got the feel of everybody, all the characters and uh, and the way that the characters should be, that w- was mostly respected. So, you know, I did never went back to watch the shows. I thought that would um, bastardize what we were trying to do. And uh, then I never felt out a need for it because I could, after that, I could watch all our episodes. And I still do. They're on Netflix. They're wonderful. And they still hold up. And I get compliments now from people with little kids who uh, were far from being born yet when we were doing the show that are discovering our show now on Netflix and loving it. It's fascinating. I, I thought just from our kind of conversations off mic and, and the little bit that we've talked about on mic, I assumed that you had gone back and watched old episodes to prepare. So I'm fascinated that you... <laughs> no, I learned about the show basically from my, my colleagues and getting the ideas. We were working on the stories. And then from definitely from once we started recording the episodes, hearing the characters through the great actors and uh, their rapport and seeing, you know, what, you know, Scooby's attitude was and everybody, Shaggy's attitude, etc. Learned it from, from the writing and the, um, and the actors. 
It was far more valuable than looking at uh, pup named Scooby-Doo or something, which they warned me against. <laughs> you were warned against pup named Scooby-Doo? Yeah, I just, uh, if I recall that, I don't know, somebody thought that it wasn't, uh, that it was cute, but uh, not the direction we wanted to go. Yeah, it was part of that whole back in the 80s when everybody was making the kid Flintstones and yeah, yeah. Muppet Babies and yeah, very different kind of show. Yeah. But yeah, nothing against what Tom Ruger. We were hoping <laughs> we were hoping our show would appeal and I think it did to grown-ups. You know, yes, it's to, it's a show that kids can watch, but we wanted grown-ups to be able to laugh and not know immediately who the culprit was and uh, think it's clever the way I used to think the Warner Brothers, uh, I don't want to say we I could write anywhere as good as they did on the Chuck Jones Warner Brothers uh, cartoons, but that was our model to try to have shows that grown-ups could watch and, and laugh at and enjoy and think it's clever. I did very much get that impression from the series that it was it was skewing a little bit older without leaving the younger demographic behind. No, we never wanted to do that. Definitely not. Yeah, with, with some of the style of mystery and with some of the music choices and just kind of the overall design and approach to the show. As a matter of fact, my son, was when I was doing the show, was uh, six and seven years old. And I've never been prouder in all my writing career as to have my son brag to his friends that my dad writes Scooby-Doo. He was so excited the fact that I was doing that show. So we definitely uh, wanted to keep a quality that kids could enjoy yeah, you were saying off mic that uh, your son actually suggested the dragon in the New Year's Parade. Yeah, he was about six, and uh, he got really into the, the show as I was doing it. And he said, you know what a great monster would be in the New Year's Parade when they have that big paper mache dragon, and it could turn into uh, a monster. You know, of course, at the end you find out it's the people behind it. But uh, So I thought that was a great idea, and I actually wrote a story and uh, people at work loved the idea of the block-long Hong Kong terror. And I was, I tried at one point to get my six-year-old son's story credit on the show, but I guess too young to join the Writers Guild or whatever. <laughs> it was the Writers Guild, but Animation Guild, whatever it was you needed to join. Anyway, but he came up with the idea, and to this day, people tell me they love that show. And my son, who is now a college graduate, I think... Uh, He's still proud of the fact that at six years old, he influenced my writing. Does he uh, trade on that street credit at all <laughs> to this day? He did. He did in those days. My dad uh, writes Scooby-Doo, and I had a very fun couple of incidents with him. First of all, I would name the characters on the show. I gave him his name, his friends' names, the one my scripts, and his teacher's name. So it was friends would have fun watching the show and hearing their name on, on as characters on What's New Scooby-Doo. And, uh, and at one point, his kindergarten teacher said, uh, well, you're naming him after the kids in this class. What about me? So on the next episode I wrote, which was Uncle Scooby and Aunt Artica, taking place in Antarctica, had, had a character named Mrs. Rouch based on uh, Linda Rouch, who was his kindergarten teacher. So that was fun. Also, um, coming to uh, career day at the uh, school and uh, knowing I was, you know, people were coming in and other parents were doctors and lawyers and, you know, boring jobs. Rob was going to be able to say, my dad writes Scooby-Doo. And I had animated stuff to show them and drawings and things. 
And this is how you get knocked off your perch. The guy right in front of me, right before I was gonna speak, was one of the parents, and he's a stuntman, and he showed film a of him being a, coming falling out of a building in fire, and B he was the stuntman for Spider-Man, and so <laughs> he sort of took the uh, flame away from me being the the star of the day. I came in kind of second, I think, but uh, <laughs> I won't see what he had to do. But anyway, it just shows you you never know when someone's going to do something more exciting than what you're doing. But back to this, um, yeah, my son was really proud of the fact that um, that his dad was doing. What's new Scooby-Doo? We mentioned the cast a little bit ago, and I wanted to touch on that again because another one of the signature things about this series was the return of Casey Kasem. Yes. And you had told me off mic that Casey was actually hired prior to you guys coming back. So I was curious. Yes. I I, I should have done the research. I'm uh, I'm embarrassed <laughs> to say I didn't, but. Was he back for one of the direct-to-video movies before the show, or did Warner Brothers just hire him back knowing that they wanted a series, or that they had a series in development? I can't answer exactly, but my feeling is it was what you, the latter, that he was hired back to the series, because he was such a great Shaggy. And we had everybody except the man who did uh, Scooby's voice, so Frank Welker, who plays Fred, in previous series, still played Fred, but uh, he also did, uh, and beautifully, he did a great, great Scooby. But Velma was, was uh, had been on, in the show before, and you know the, the uh, different characters uh, were were cast before we were there. Yeah, it was a really great set of casting. Like I, I guess you kind of inherited Gray Delisle at the time because she was terrific. Because Mary Kay Bergman was doing it, and then course tragedy and uh, gray took over uh, mindy Cohn was brilliant as velma yes having casey back and having frank there and like you said yeah frank did such an amazing job with scooby i think for a lot of fans i mean again like i said with a pup named scooby-doo like i think a lot of fans grew up with what's new as well and i think for uh-huh. for fans like myself you know i'd mentioned earlier how it was kind of like a it felt connected to that original series it felt like it, it was doing new things, but not kind of betraying the core idea. And having those original cast members back, it it kind of anchored it in a way. Yeah, I think you're really right. And because Gray and Mindy were so solid and that cast just blended like so well, I think... They blended, and I can tell you, even in the recording sessions, they just blended so well and had so much fun with each other and just became the characters right in front of your eyes. It was magical. Were the sessions done as group sessions? Uh, often when needed, yeah, they would be a group of them together. There are other times when one or they would come in one at a time to record their parts, but yes, there were certainly times when they were all in there together. Excellent. Touching on Casey again, I know like the reason Casey left the show was the whole kerfluffle over the, the vegan uh, lifestyle and Shaggy's eating habits was there. I noticed it's not really like explicitly mentioned in the show, but it, it does seem to be written or drawn as though Shaggy is eating primarily vegetarian food. Was that? Yeah, we went in that direction. Was that a condition? Was that something that you guys had to deal with? That I don't know. I know that it was, we felt it was kind of hip at the time too, that, that he would like vegetarian things and we can make up all sorts of funny dishes that he liked eating that were vegetarian based. Meanwhile, we, we kept up, 
the trope that both he and uh, Scooby loved nothing more than, little more than to eat, whatever it was. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever feel any pressure? As I said, you guys kind of like updated the series, you modernized it a little bit. People had really like set ideas of certain relationship dynamics or certain roles. Some people talk about the early 69 series and, and they're like, yeah, you know, Daphne was just the girl and looking back on those episodes I don't agree with that Yeah, but I know that Daphne had um, her character sort of took a, a different direction in this iteration of the show was that something that you guys as writers were like let's let's bring something to these characters that wasn't previously there or was that yeah something? it sort of evolved and, and uh, you know we were doing these great mysteries that were great you know for, for what we were doing there uh, a little more twisty than uh, as I said so they had uh, elements that could uh, affected the characters, and we found that Daphne wound up being so clever with, as we call it, MacGyvering things to get them out of a trap or to get them able to uh, not be stuck in a in a space where the the, the villain had blocked them in or whatever it is. Uh, she was uh, she was the one who was mechanically inclined and could figure out. Uh, clever ways to, uh, you know, to extricate the rest of them, and it gave her a whole new uh, detective function in the uh, in the stories. Now, with characters like, or, or with actors like Casey and Frank, who have been with these characters since the beginning, yeah. Did you guys have any interaction with the actors? I know in other series, writers have said that uh, you know they'll write something but when it comes to record these actors are so in tune with their characters that they'll just be like they wouldn't say that or they'll change something or they'll like do little additions or was that something you had to uh, to deal with to interact with the with the voice talent not at all uh, we were thrilled to watch them do our words and they pretty much did our words as we wrote them and they were they seemed to be very happy and had a lot of fun with the scripts and we had a lot of fun hearing it come alive in the, in the mouths of these wonderfully talented people. I don't think there was any time when we had to whisper to the voice director, no, no, it, would, it was supposed to be this way or not. They really interpreted beautifully. And the voice director was very talented and, and guided them in a, in a way that we were all very happy with. It was, it was always a great pleasure to watch the recording sessions. In fact, thrilling. And that would be Colette Sunderman? Yes, she was terrific. I remember we had Pamela Adlon in to do the voice of a little boy, which she did a lot in those days. And now she's a uh, major TV star of better things. But uh, when she came in, she was talking about Colette. Asked her about her new new baby. And it wound up being a little girl that went to school eventually with with my son. And uh, I think she's got an acting career now, too. But it was kind of... Interesting to, to know Pamela back then when she was doing voices for Scooby. What other uh, interesting guest actors did you have on that were high points for you? I knew you'd ask that. <laughs> <laughs> we had really good, you know, character actors that would come in. I couldn't tell you now. It's been, you know, whatever since uh, what has this been? Almost, you know, sixteen, seventeen years. So. Uh, I know we had really good people that came in, good uh, voice actors and, and some well-known people, but in, in retrospect, I, I couldn't tell you. Our stars were, the you know, the four leads of Scooby-Doo. 
So towards the end of the tenure of your show, you get tasked to do uh, Scooby-Doo and the Loch Ness Monster, which was the first direct-to-video movie that was within kind of the What's New uh, continuity. Prior to that, it was uh, Legend of the Vampire and Monster of Mexico, which brought the original voice cast back. These movies kicked off, uh, I can't remember how many movies it was in total, but it went from Loch Ness Monster to, I think, the Samurai Sword. It used the basic character designs and the the sort of style of the What's New series. Now, you've, you've kind of admitted to me that, to your knowledge, there was no going into this, as in we're now establishing a new continuity with the direct-to-video movies. Is that correct? Yeah, we were just asked to uh, do a longer form, and it was kind of exciting for us, essentially writing a movie with our characters. By that time, we were all real familiar with the characters of the show and the direction that What's New Scooby-Doo was going. So it was just uh, really fun, and we got to have longer scenes and be more ambitious in what we sh- what we showed and saw. So uh, that was an exciting chapter of doing the show. And what was it like moving from doing the series to doing the film? Obviously, uh, rather than a 22-minute episode, you're dealing with essentially a 70- or 80-minute episode. Freedom, and also, I love story, so we got to develop more elaborate stories, and, you know, it was all, it was all positive, very, very nice, and, uh, you know, with, when you're writing, it's, it's sometimes it's harder to, to edit yourself and make it shorter than it is, it's longer, great, the longer the better, and you can put more things in, and uh, so uh, it was a delight. That's interesting. You didn't find it to be more of a challenge to construct mysteries around a much longer time frame? Better mysteries. No, not at all. And I think about that. All right. <laughs> three of us would pitch in together to develop the stories, so we helped each other. And it really, um, I think it, it was uh, not a challenge at all. It was exciting. Do you think your experience writing for live action, hour-long format mysteries, maybe helped with uh, formatting for you? Not really, just my experience writing stories for anything that I did. Uh, the story was always the kernel, and figuring out a story long before you write the script on anything is what makes the product good. And uh, it's always, that's my favorite part of the whole thing. And sometimes we would take, on other shows, we would take weeks to work out a good story, and then the, the script and the jokes were just frosting on the cake. And I think in this case, same thing. We had a lot of fun writing these stories, including the the feature-length ones. And then when it came time to just what what did they say is was came a lot easier and was frosting on the cake. And what would you say? What is the writing process like for you, as far as when you sit down and you have to come up with an episode for Scooby Doo? What <laughs> what is that process like? I don't know. I guess. I remember, I, I'm trying to remember what it was like specifically for Scooby-Doo. We'd have certain concepts that we liked, and we'd make sure they were okay with, with the production company, Warner Animation. We had a very good rapport with the production, as I said, Christopher Keenan that was there, and he would okay whatever ones he liked the best, and then from there... Uh, talk about them, try to develop in the beginning, middle, and end, and get the nuances of story, and go from there. Was there any particular challenge that was kind of a consistent obstacle for you? On, on Scooby? No. Yeah. No, not at all. It was, uh, no. it was 
a wonderful uh, <laughs> it was a wonderful experience and uh, no challenge uh, my, fa- my what I always say is what's the best people say what are the best shows that you've ever worked on in terms of your satisfaction and my answer is always always who I work with every day these are people you spend several hours with every single day of the week and if they're fun and great people and creative and it's a fun experience it's a delightful job and in this case I love the people I worked with I love Jim and George and uh, Christopher and the animators and the cast and uh, I greatly look forward to being there every day and that's it was never any kind of challenge. It was it was uh, delight, and I uh, feel to, to this day I have great great nostalgia for uh, working on what's new Scooby Doo. You wrote Loch Ness Monster, and then there was a second direct-to-video movie which you did not write, and then you wrote the third movie, whose name also escapes me at the moment. Was that basically the the a production thing where? You did one, and somebody else was like in the pipe to do the next one, and then you were in the pipe to do the next one. Or, or are we were probably those... writing simultaneously? Maybe even I don't remember now, but that's okay. Probably the we helped each other while we were doing doing these, so uh, you know we we interacted. Absolutely, I, I would expect nothing less. <laughs> so, looking back on the what's new experience, do you have? Uh, any favorite episodes or moments during the show's run that you would say were kind of particular, either highlights of the the run on the series or career highlights, anything like that? Well, here's some thoughts. One is the great genius behind these shows um, that was still alive, the Hanna-Barbera shows, which Scooby is one of them, was Joe Barbera, who was at the point this point in his 80s, Still came to work every single day. His office was down the hall from mine. Was so happy with the way the show was going, which was great because he was part of the creation of it and was, you know, it's one of his shows. But he was delighted with what we were doing with it. And I actually got to, at times, pitch ideas with him and get him his input into the shows that we were writing. He had an office at his home and, and his office at the studio. And he had the same exact setup of his furniture, his desk, etc., in both places. So his, his studio <laughs> office looked exactly like his home office. And we got to, uh, as I say, you know, we saw him every day, and we got to actually work in his studio office. So that was one of the high points of uh, working there. The other, another one I could say is um, Warner Brothers now owned the Hanna-Barbera shows, and of course one of their most famous cartoon series was The Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote, and I was writing an episode that took place in the Arizona desert, and one executive came up to me and said, would you mind, we would like to do a tribute to The Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote, since you're in a desert, would you mind a cameo of those two characters briefly in writing them into your episode? I said, I'd be so honored. My God, I grew up with them, and uh, it'd be so much fun. You're going to have the animators actually make them so they looked exactly like they always did in their shorts. So I did. I uh, The uh, mystery machine is traveling through the Arizona desert and dealing with whatever the story was about the group, our team. And in the background, there's the coyote running across the desert on the horizon, and Wiley 
coyote chasing him, just as he did in the old cartoons. He went, meep, meep. And the only person who saw sees this, the only character who sees this is Scooby and us, of course. And Scooby turns to us and goes, in Scooby language, reap, reap. <laughs> and, uh, and that was it. And they ran off to they loved that and uh, Frank Welker loved doing reef reef after the Roner going meep meep and I was just so honored I mean these are two of the most famous characters in the history of movies they got to do a cameo in my episode now speaking of uh, Mr. Barbera you guys actually had him I think in two episodes on the show if I'm not mistaken as far as his likeness but you didn't have his voice right? You know, I don't remember. Okay, there was the character of Mr. B. It was uh, <laughs> it was the episode with all the puppies. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I'll tell you why he's in that. That was the one we worked on with him, and he said he wanted to do an episode with puppies. So we developed, and he helped us develop the story. So I think that's why Mr. B got in there, because that was his basically his story. Okay. Fair enough. That's yeah. cool. <laughs> I actually I love hearing stories about uh, Joe and Bill just because you know they're gone now yeah. and so many people have made their way through their studio mm -hmm. I mean I often cite you, you mentioned Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote and like some of those early writers uh, at Hanna-Barbera were guys like Mike Maltese or um, well there were some very very good writers that came through there and uh, they, they uh, were historic shows and influenced a lot of animation and live action and it was Comedy such a hotbed was... of like creativity and just production and i mean whatever anybody wants to say about you know the quality of that production because obviously as the the studio grew larger and the uh, amount of series that they were producing had certain production needs let's say that yeah but so many people have have been through there and orbited that place and i, I just really like anytime i have a chance to talk to anybody who's kind of walked those halls, you know, has, has been to the, the building on Coenga, has actually interacted with Joe or Bill. I always have to ask because you just never know what's going to come up. Well, we were, um, we walked the halls briefly, my partner, Eva Almas and I at the time, um, because they wanted to revive the Jetsons. And he actually, we wrote the script that would have revived it, where um, if you remember their, their robot housekeeper was Rosie and, they decided they would try something, you know, and this is the future. They would just try something revolutionary. Instead of having a robot housekeeper, this is revolutionary. They thought about bringing a real live person. <laughs> this is the way of the future. The housekeeper. And they brought in this character that was, that replaced, first of all, the kids, they were all sad because Rosie wasn't working with them anymore. Then the, this obnoxious, housekeeper came in a lot who just who cried and had all these human emotions and they realized at the end that they how much they appreciated Rosie and brought her back anyway the um just when they were about to animate this was the point where Hanna-Barbera was sold to Warner Brothers and they did not go ahead with the uh the Jetson revival series but we got to uh we were hired to write the last uh, or the, the, I guess you'd call it kind of a pilot script for the new series that eventually didn't go anywhere. But it was exciting. And that, just to go back to what you said, it was so exciting to be there at Hanna-Barbera. And then a couple of years later, there we were doing actually doing a Hanna-Barbera show, Scooby. 
for Warner's animation. Does Jordana know that the Jetsons came that close to coming back? She's a huge Jetsons fan. <laughs> I forgot whether we talked about it. Maybe we did. <laughs> it breaks my heart to find out that it got that close. Yeah, very close. Considering what you guys managed with Scooby-Doo, like to bring the same kind of ethos to to the Jetsons would have been really fun. And it's a show that, unlike a lot of other, you know, Scooby and Flintstones, Yogi Bear, like they kind of had that one season. And then there was the the revival season, which, again, people have opinions on (laughs) compared to the original season. Yeah. But it it is one of those staples. It's one of those iconic uh, properties that Hanna-Barbera has that just would have been nice to see it come back. I'm really sorry it didn't. Yeah. But it was fun to be there at the moment. Yeah. We got to play with the, we got to play in the sandbox for a little while. <laughs> yeah, well, I I figured my whole writing career, and especially in television, uh, was uh, several decades of playing in the sandbox. I feel very lucky that that was the way my life went. Now I wanted to touch briefly on after doing the direct-to-video movies, uh, your name also popped up as having been involved with supervising story for a couple of Scooby-Doo video games. Yeah. And I was wondering how how you got involved with that and what that experience was like. Well, it was it was just a uh, connection to uh, what we were doing already. So it was the same company, and and uh, they said we have some video games and we could uh, come up with stories. And the advantage here is this, the the uh, plot can go in so many different directions depending where the game goes. So part of what you need to do is decide on what happens if the story goes this way or that way or the other way which was a challenge and exciting. And uh, again, I've never played a video game, so I didn't really know anything about that part of it, but there was the department that actually made it into a video game. All I had to do was work on the stories and the story directions, and then they would incorporate it into the game. Did you actually write scripts, or were you there just to sort of maintain tone for the characters' consistency? No, no, they were they were scripts. Okay. That, you know, had the characters go in the various different directions depending on the story of that game. And it was really interesting to me. Did you find that challenging to switch into that other mode or was it just another, it's just more writing? <laughs> well, the story part of it was, was script writing, although, and it was exciting because you got to see where uh, other directions that the story could go. Uh, the challenging part was uh, the game part, which fortunately there were you know, people there that knew how to do that and, uh, you know, my game is Scrabble, so uh, which is, doesn't require a lot of high-tech stuff. <laughs> so uh, at any rate, you know, it was for my part of it was, was story writing and, and writing the characters going in different directions, different story directions. All right. That's kind of most of the questions that I have for uh, Scooby-related stuff. But uh, I do know from talking to you off mic that uh, you mentioned you were writing a memoir. Yes, is that uh, something that's far along, or is that still a work in progress? Well, it's a work in progress in that I finished it, and I've on, I'm probably on the third draft right now of a finished book, and reluctant to let it go. It's been therapy. It's been fun. It's, it's, it's it throws me back into different parts of my life. I certainly have my Scooby stories in there, amongst all the a lot of other stories. And uh, the, the, the basis is, I don't really call it a memoir. The, the premise of this is uh, the fact that I've interacted with many well-known and famous people through my life, whether I've just stumbled across them or they actually had anecdotes, uh, you know, important parts of my life. 
so I tried to, uh, I kept, people kept saying, why don't you write a book? You got so many great stories. So I eventually did. And I've been working on this like about four years. I think it's ready to be, so I'm going to self publish it. Okay. Talking to friends who have done that and, and find uh, like through Amazon and find that's a productive way to go. So yes. And yes, I have uh, Scooby stories in there. <laughs> uh, some of which we talked about today. I would be, uh, very interested in reading that when it comes out. Do you have any kind of guesstimate as to how long you're going to hang on to it, or do you kind of have a, an, an idea? It would have been it would have been sooner sooner if not for our quarantine situation. Uh, now it's you know you have all these projects in your house to pass the time while you're quarantined and stuck at home, and my book has become one of those. So I'm, I'm, I'm dragging my feet because it's one of the things I can do every day. But I would say, uh, even if this continues, I would like to have it out by the end of the year. Well, definitely keep me posted or I'll, I'll check in with you again. Sure. <laughs> I'm actually, right now I'm reading Bill Hanna's uh, autobiography and I've got, I've got Joe Barbera's kind of in the wings. It's, uh, it's been really interesting. With all the... Well, I think especially for what you do, you would find it very interesting. Yeah, well, that's... But I, I mean... That's ultimately why I hunted them down, because I, I wanted to kind of flesh out some of the stuff that I've been hearing in my conversations, and I wanted to kind of ground, you know, some of my knowledge of the studio and its history, because I, I think it's relevant to, you know, everything that kind of came through that studio. Sure. And also, there's there's some Scooby stories in there, so I have to. Oh, great. great but uh, great. It's, been, it's been really great. Yeah, imagine. When I get into conversations with, you know, people who've been with the franchise for a while, who have some real history with it, like, there's more places the conversation could go. <laughs> well, it's, I'm, I'm sure they're terrific to read, especially uh, as background for what you're doing, but I'm sure their stories are important, stories in the history of uh, filmmaking, and much less uh, their particular TV shows. I'm kind of curious to see, like I said, I'm reading Bill's book right now. And from everything I've heard about Bill, you know, he was very straight arrow. He was, you know, strong work ethic. He didn't mince words. He wasn't a very, like, he didn't have that salesman, right? Like, that's why Joe was doing that. He was he was very much about nose to the grindstone, get the work done, just real meat and potatoes kind of guy. And that's literally how the thing is written. And it, it's enjoyable. Like, I'm, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But now I'm wondering when I get to Joe's biography, like how much difference it's going to be because they do seem to be, their personalities are coming out in it and it, it could be an interesting read. Oh yeah. I think it, Joe's personality from what you're saying would be quite different than Bill's and, and come definitely come out in his book. I've heard a lot of really fun Joe stories. Great. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> well, eventually. He was a colorful guy. Yeah. Well, <laughs> even in his eighties and he did something which was so dear to my heart Toward the end, he would come in. He'd still come in, but uh, he'd come in on a uh, wheelchair with a with a helper. And uh, towards the, I'm saying towards the end of our show, not you know, I don't know. I think he lived a little bit longer than that. But uh, anyway, one day I brought my little son in to to see where I work and see the uh, you know Scooby Doo animators, etc. And we happened to arrive just behind. Joe and his helper and he saw us and that I had my kid with me and he stopped the helper had him turn the wheelchair around came all the way back down so he could say hi to my kid and that uh, uh, just was so sweet that's great so one of the things that I usually ask 
uh, my guests at the end of the conversation. Yes. Is since this franchise has, we're now in the the 50th year of Scooby Doo. Wow. It seems to be invincible. Yeah. I'm curious to know, for people who've worked on it, like what their impression, because I feel like they have a maybe a different perspective than us on the outside, as to what makes this this franchise work, why it's so ubiquitous and why it's so long lasting. And uh, so I put that question to you. Why why do you think this this franchise has lasted 50 years and shows no signs of stopping? Well, I think the basic element is the the chemistry between the Scooby team and that each one had their own characters that people got to know and uh, they know what was going to be funny about each one and uh, they could relate. I think there was a certain period when people really related to Shaggy. So I think it's, it's the characters and the fact that it was a little mystery, you know, that was appealing and it continues to be appealing and that people get used to uh, some of the, um, the elements that are repeated like, you know, we would have gotten away with it if it weren't for you meddling kids, things that we, we had to keep alive, or we wanted to keep alive in our version, Right. that the people loved, you know, those moments that they were expecting almost, uh, once they knew the characters and in, in their rapport, and then playing around with the characters and having them do things they wouldn't normally do. When you watch it enough, it's exciting to see that change. But I think if you wanted to say what has kept it interesting through the years to different generations is that core of the Scooby team. I agree. I've also heard the show referred to as a procedural, which really threw me because I've never viewed it that way, but it kind of is. <laughs> and when you look at how long shows like Law and Order have lasted, it kind of is. I think it's something that does, it's something that we as humans, I think, just really want to experience. Sure. <laughs> yeah, and it is always appealing, and we have certainly had an element of that in, uh, in our version, and I'm sure the other versions too. Okay, well, that's all I have for you today, Ed. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for sharing your stories of your time uh, working on the franchise. It's been uh, it's been a lot of fun digging into the history of mystery with you. It's a great pleasure to to uh, be part of your podcast, Mike. Uh, is there anywhere? Do you have any social media that you want to let anybody know about? No, I I stay away from those things. They they scare me. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Take care and all the best uh, moving forward, Ed. Well, thank you very much. I greatly appreciate that. And there you have it. That concludes my conversation with What's New Scooby-Doo producer, writer, and story editor, Ed Charlock. I had a lot of fun talking to Ed and traveling down memory lane with him. I gotta say, I'm really looking forward to his autobiography when it finally comes out. Hopefully I can get Ed back on the show when that does happen. Maybe we can talk a little bit more Scooby and Hanna-Barbera. And I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation and uh, got a little something out of it. If you're a newer listener to the show, I'd encourage you to go back through the catalog of episodes available at uh, www.scoobydoocast.com. You'll find a lot more content and interviews there as well as some audio commentaries done by creatives who have worked on the show. And I would encourage everybody to check out the blog the blog name Scooby-Doo at scoobydoocast.wordpress.com where I've been featuring short interviews with artists who have worked on variant covers of the uh, Scooby Apocalypse comic book series that ran for 36 issues from DC Comics and Hanna-Barbera and those interviews I'm 
putting under the umbrella of the Apocalypse Variations. Those have been really fun to put together. And if you want to just contact the show, communicate with the podcast, engage beyond just plugging me in your ear holes, check out the social media. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can find me pretty much anywhere, either at ScoobyDooCast or uh, a podcast named Scooby-Doo. While you're there, like, follow, share, and subscribe. You can also check out the show on YouTube. And if you're pulling the show off of uh, a place like Apple Podcasts, while you're there, rating and reviewing the show, it's very helpful. Uh, I would encourage you to do so if you like the show, because uh, it helps get the show into the eyes and ears of people who may not know that uh, the podcast exists, and uh, they might dig it, but just not know how to find it. And rating and reviewing bumps you up. The algorithm, it's the algorithms. Can't argue with that. I want to thank you guys once again for checking the show out, for downloading the show, for supporting the podcast. Uh, it's always great to see the response every time I post an episode and uh, to engage with all of you on social media and look forward to some really cool interviews coming up in the future. And as we count down, what are we like, 13 days, 12 days, as we count down 12 days to the anniversary of Scooby-Doo, where are you? And move into year 51. There's a handful of things I wanted to do in year 50 that I didn't get to do. So I'm totally carrying those over. And hopefully we'll have fun with those in the next 52 weeks. Stay tuned. Keep your ear to the ground. Watch the social media. All the news will be there. So like I said, thanks so much for checking the show out. Everybody out there, keep safe. Keep well. And we'll see you next time as we dig into the history of mystery on a podcast named Scooby Doo. Exactly how she Take did care. was still unclear until we saw the broken flight rig of the ballad here, whose name is Kyle! 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 The Hovering Balladeer! Everybody cheer! This is how we solve the mystery. This is how we solve the mystery. So, in summation, this narration is my donation. To the art of mystery solving dictation And here's what the bad guys say when they play where the law forbids What a kind of way with it too If it wasn't for you meddling kids This is how we solve the mystery Bye